Remain standing for the sermon text from Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Give your ear to God's word. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his blessing on the reading and preaching of his inspired word. Oh God, rule and overrule our hearts this, this morning as we meditate on these words of truth, these words of life. May they give us life by the power of your spirit working in us. Help us to understand, help us to believe, and help us to do what you say. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you can tell from the sermon handout, the outline that you should have gotten when you got your bulletin, we're in part three of a little mini-series, I guess you could say, within the book of Romans, within the eighth chapter. You can see from the grayed-out points the, what we covered the previous two weeks. And today we come to verses 14 and 17 which I just read, and the thing that immediately stands out to us when we read today's paragraph, verses 14 to 17, the thing that jumps out at us in each verse is that the people of God are referred to as his children or his sons. Did you notice that? And in each case, our privileged status as sons or children is connected with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're looking at the passage, you may be wondering where the reference to children or sons is in verse 15. Where in verse 15 is there a reference to, to sonship All right, or being a child of God? Well, it's in that word adoption. Do you see that? I think that word makes it into all the, the translations, the, the main ones at least. And the, the word translated adoption is built on the Greek word for son. So the word son is actually in that word and then some, a few other letters too. And so the, the Greek speakers, they basically took the word son and then they added another word to it, kind of a general verb, so that it means adoption as sons. It means literally to put as a son, okay? And, and, and that's precisely actually how the, the New American Standard Bible translates it, I believe, is adoption as sons, the NIV translates it adoption to sonship, which also captures the idea of that word. So the idea of being God's spiritual progeny shows up in every verse. And I want you to see this before we really get into the sermon. So as I reread these four verses from the handout, notice that in each verse, the people of God are called his children or his sons. And in each case, 
the privilege of being God's son or God's child, his children, is connected in some way to the work of the Spirit. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery again resulting in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption to sonship, by which we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. And what is that witness? What's that testimony? That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Adoption was a customary legal procedure in the Roman world, in the Roman society that Paul grew up in. Uh, It took a, a, a different shape than it takes today. Often a wealthy man who had no heir would adopt a son. It could be a young boy. Or it could be a, a, a grown man. And the moment the, the son was adopted, several things happened. The adopted child would get a new name, a new inheritance. That he'd, his debts, if he had any, would be canceled. But he also would take on new obligations, new responsibilities to his new father, his adoptive father. And all this is in the background of our passage today. An adopted, uh, As adopted children of God... We've received a new name. Our debts have been canceled, and we have new obligations, new responsibilities to please our adoptive Father, God. And so if we want to understand who a Christian is, what a Christian is, and why being a Christian is a privilege, and how it comes with privileges, promises and privileges, we've got to appreciate God's fatherhood and our adoption to sonship. We've got to understand this if we're going to understand the gospel. Knowing that you are a child of God, being certain you've been adopted, is the mainspring of Christian living, of faithful living. If you lack assurance that you're a child of God, if you're not certain that God has adopted you into his family, if you're not sure that he's become your father, that you've become his son, his child, your walk with Christ will limp along at best. Paul's main point, sort of the theological ground that he lays here, is stated explicitly in verse 16. The whole verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Only verse 16 states this specifically like this, but the whole passage concerns the assurance provided by the Holy Spirit that we are children of God, that you are a child of God. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what he's wanting to accomplish at bottom. There are other things that spring from that, but that's the main thing. The Christians in Rome that Paul's writing to were just like us. They needed assurance that they belonged to God. They needed to know how to think about these things that we think about. They needed to know that their sonship, their adoption into God's family was real and permanent and secure. How can I know that I'm a child of God? 
Are there indicators? Are, are there pieces of evidence that God has adopted me and made me one of his sons? The Roman Christians had these questions in the first century. We have these questions in the 21st century, and Paul has timeless answers for all of us. If you've been born of God, then the Spirit bears witness. He testifies that you are a child of God. But what is the basis of his testimony? What evidence does he point to? In these four verses, Paul, he presents four pieces of evidence that you've been adopted by God. The, 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 four, the four pieces of evidence are captured briefly in uh, my subheadings there under point six at the bottom of the sermon outline. Headed toward holiness, freedom for fear, prompted in prayer, and imperishable inheritance. First, headed toward holiness. You can know that God is your new adoptive father. You can be certain you've received the spirit of adoption because you're headed toward holiness, which is to say the spirit is leading you into greater and greater holiness, personal holiness, righteousness, righteous living. For all who are led by the spirit of God, Paul says, are sons of God. Genuine sons of God are always led by the Spirit of God. This is a rule without exception. Sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. When Paul says sons of God in verse 14, he's not leaving out the women and the, and the girls. All Christians are God's adopted sons in an important sense. He's using a word here that applied specifically to sons to boys, to males in the ancient world, but he's, he's including everyone. And it's part of what he's saying here is that everyone in the family of God receives the same privileges. A, a Christian woman or girl shouldn't resent being called a son any more than a Christian man or boy should resent being married to Christ, as Romans 7 says, every Christian is. Every Christian female is a son of God, and every Christian male is married to Christ, Paul says. Each of these analogies tells you something important about your relationship with Christ. We could also talk about how the analogies have limitations. Obviously, they're analogies, but they have important things to tell you, each of them, about your relationship with God in Christ. And we know because Paul tells us that sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit. But what's it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, it's tempting to think that being led by the Spirit has to do with everyday decisions or, or maybe major life decisions like where to live, which job to take, who to marry, which car to buy. Something like that. And, and we certainly should seek God's guidance in those things. Those are important decisions that you absolutely should, must seek God's will about. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Being led by the Spirit in this context means being controlled by the Spirit. 
governed by the Spirit, ruled by the Spirit, mastered by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, even driven by the Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit, instead of being controlled, governed, ruled, mastered, directed, or driven by the flesh, is evidence you're a child of God. It's important, too, that the verb lead, to lead, is passive here. <clears throat> Believers are led by the Spirit, which means that the Spirit is the primary mover, the main actor in producing Christian obedience in us. Yes, and we emphasized this last week, you work out your own salvation, but that's only possible because God is at work on the inside of you causing you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 11 and 12. The spiritual fruit that comes out of you was first a seed that was planted inside of you by God's spirit. And there it was watered and nourished. It was cultivated by the same spirit until it produced that fruit. That's why Paul calls it the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Where does the Spirit lead God's sons? Not always into prosperity and comfort. Not always to a good job or a good spouse. Not always into good circumstances. Not always into our hopes and our dreams. But always into holiness. Always into holiness. Which is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is God's will for us. The Spirit makes sure that God's will is accomplished in us. That's his mission. That's where he's leading us into God's will, which is our holiness. The Spirit prompts you and strengthens you to put to death the deeds of the body. You remember that phrase from last week, the verse right before it? The deeds of the body is how Paul labels sin in verse 13. And, and verse 14 is tightly connected to verse 13. You can see they're connected with, a, with, a word, with the word for. So verse 14 starts for, which takes, so what, that we have to go back to 13 and see what he's building on. And one of the conclusions we are to draw from this, this connection is that the putting to death of the sinful deeds of the body is precisely where the Spirit is leading. That's the destination of God's sons because that's where the Spirit is leading us. One old Bible teacher put it this way, the daily, hourly putting to death of the schemings and enterprises of the sinful flesh by means of the Spirit is a matter of being led, directed, impelled, controlled by the Spirit. That's what it looks like to be a son of God. Second, freedom for fear. You can know that God is your new adoptive father. You can be certain you've received the spirit of adoption because the spirit has replaced your fear with freedom. The first half of verse 15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, again resulting in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I already mentioned how 
adoption worked in ancient Rome, but it's worth reiterating because Paul, Paul's drawing on an ancient custom that we're not totally familiar with. And, and this time, though, I'm going to let one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century do the talking. And, his, and this quote, F.F. Bruce, reminds us that we must interpret the implications of our adoption to sonship, not, not in terms of our contemporary cultures so much at least, but in terms of the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. He writes, In the Roman world of the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature. And he might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and re reproduce the father's character more worthily. End quote. In verse 15, Paul uses the imagery of slavery and freedom to contrast your pre-conversion situation with your post-conversion situation. The word received in verse 15 refers to your conversion to Christ. The moment you received the spirit of adoption is the moment you were born of God as, as his son. Before we became, before we become some, before we become sons, Paul says, our slavery to sin makes us dreadfully afraid, fearful, particularly of God's judgment, of the wrath to come. It's looming. It's ominous. We know it's there. Paul says in Romans 1 that unbelievers know that judgment awaits them. But now that we're sons, our new freedom from sin gives us confidence to approach God as our loving father. Everything's changed. Everything's changed in our relationship to our creator. Now, it's true that if you're, some of you are remembering Romans 6, which says that we're slaves still to God, to righteousness. But that's the good kind of slavery, and it doesn't lead to the kind of fear that Paul's talking about here. We learned in Romans 6 that slavery to sin is the worst kind of bondage, while slavery to righteousness is the best kind of freedom. Slavery to sin is the worst kind of bondage. Slavery to righteousness is the best kind of freedom. This is because slavery to sin leads to fear, while slavery to righteousness leads to to freedom, confidence. We could say it this way, slavery to righteousness is the essence of freedom. No one is truly free until he has become God's bondservant. And so freedom, rather than fear, rules the life of the Son of God. Little s, Son of God, the child of God, you and me. As well as the Son of God. Also, the spirit who has been given to believers is a spirit who liberates them from the power of sin and generates in them a new obedience, a new holiness that begins in their hearts, not just external, but internal. And we fail to understand this text unless we see in verses 14 and 15 that being a son of God is inseparable from being led by the Spirit into that new obedience. 
into the works that God prepared beforehand for us, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. In verse 14, those controlled by the Spirit are sons of God. And in verse 15, those those adopted sons of God are no longer enslaved to sin. It's really kind of two ways of saying something very similar. Instead of the fear that comes with being a slave to sin, you've been given confidence that a confidence that comes with having been freed from sin, from sin's penalty and power. And this new confidence enables you to approach the Heavenly Father with the same kind of confidence that my two-year-old has when he approaches me. No fear there. Or with the same kind of freedom and boldness that my four-year-old has when she climbs into my side of the bed at 3.30 a.m. Are you characterized by fear, anxiety, dread, because you're still a slave to sin? Or are you characterized by freedom, confidence, and joy in your relationship with God because you are a son of God and a slave to righteousness? Third, prompted to prayer. You can know that God is your adoptive father. You can be certain you've received the spirit of adoption because the spirit prompts you to pray and in a certain way. Specifically, he prompts you to to call God Abba, Father. For For you have not received a spirit of slavery, again resulting in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which or by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 16 is tightly connected to verse 15. And this connection teaches you that your spirit won't be able to hear the testimony of God's spirit unless you are regularly running to your heavenly Father in prayer. You won't be able to hear the Spirit bearing witness that you are a child of God unless you're frequently crying, Abba, Father, crying out to God in prayer. Some scholars even think that the last part of verse 15 should go with verse 16, should be in the same sentence as verse 16, so that it reads this way. In fact, I'm just reading from one major translation, the revised standard version. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so there the the RSV translates it to say that, that when we pray to the Father, When we cry out, that is, that itself is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Now, that's not, I don't think, the best way to translate the Greek, and and most scholars agree that it's not. But it does, but there is a connection there, and it, it does communicate an important point, the way these verses are together. It, it, it. The, The point is that you're never in a better place to hear the testimony of the Spirit than when you're in prayer, when you're communing with God, when you are praying in the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians, in Ephesians 6. Abba was an Aramaic term of endearment. A child would use it to express affection for his or her 
father, like when an English-speaking child who loves his father says, Dear Father. It was a term of intimacy and affection. And when the Spirit lives inside a person, He causes that person to approach God the Father with intimacy and love, as well as freedom and confidence. The Spirit of God gives the sons of God a childlike and joyous assurance when we pray, when we pray in the Spirit. Even better, he gives us the joy and the assurance of Jesus. Remember that, that word co-heir, joint heir with Christ? God, Paul is talking about things that, that God has given us, that the Spirit give, gives us, that he first gave to Christ, that, that Jesus, first of all, enjoys and experiences. And so he gives us the joy and the assurance that Jesus has who was so confident of his father's love for him that he could boldly pray in Mark 14.36, Abba, Father, same phrase. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's a great prayer. That's a great model prayer. And that kind of prayer... It can apply to a lot of situations that are obviously less extreme than that one. Abba, Father, you can do anything you want. I know you can. I, I believe in your power. All things are possible. I'd like you to change something in my life. I'd like you to remove me from this circumstance or remove this circumstance from me. But don't do what I want. Do what you want. That's a great prayer. In our prayers to the Father, in our crying out to the Father in this way, we experience, we hear the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. We hear him testify that we belong to God. We hear him bearing witness that God truly is our Father, that we truly are his son, his sons. Think about what Paul's saying here. The Spirit is the one, there's kind of two things that fit together perfectly. The Spirit is the one who prompts you to pray, who enables you to call on God, who, who enables you to say, Abba, Father. He's the one producing that in you. And when you do that, when you pray, when you cry out to God, the Father, the same Spirit who caused you to do it is there bearing witness that you're God's adopted son. So both of these things are works of the same spirit at the same time. And they fit together. And it's important to see that there are two witnesses in this verse. The spirit, uh, your spirit, and the Holy Spirit. And they're bearing witness to the same thing. Okay, the spirit of the born-again Christian and the spirit of God testify to the same reality. In other words, the born-again Christian has a double witness. And that double witness inside of him is saying that he's a child of God. There's no, we need to think about what Paul's saying here because we might be uncomfortable with it if we, if we think 
if we meditate on it deeply and really consider the implications. There's no way around the fact that Paul is describing an inner spiritual religious experience that is deep and indescribable. The kind of thing that maybe the reformed sector of, of the church is not always great at talking about, at thinking about. The witness of the Holy Spirit with the human spirit that a person is a son of God is, we could even say, mystical in the best sense of the word. That's a, that's a freighted word. But we shouldn't shy away from this idea be, you know, because of its subjective and mystical nature. We, we need to be careful not to exclude the inward, personal, emotional, spiritual dimensions of the Christian experience just because maybe others abuse that, that sort of thing, that sort of dimension. We cry, Abba, Father, and the cry, dear Father, Abba, Father, is the emotional cry of a child. It's the cry of Jesus before he goes to the cross, asking God if there's any way to do it differently. And the witness of the Spirit with your spirit is an inner witness that only you have access to. It's a personal cry and a personal uh, testimony of sorts. Now, I can see some of the evidence that the Spirit points to when he bears witness with your spirit and your spirit. I can see the evidence, but I can't hear the Spirit's testimony about your sonship. That's the Spirit's witness with your spirit that you we could say, hear, experience, receive. The assurance that the Spirit gives you of your adoption into the family of God is supernatural and personal. It happens in the heart. And, it, and yet it transcends human comprehension. Paul already spoke this way back in Romans 5 where he said something similar about the inward ministry of the Spirit. Romans 5.5 5 says this, The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of God being poured out into your heart is something you experience at, at the heart level, on the inside, in your heart, naturally. The, the same is true of the Spirit's testimony in 8.16, adopted sons hear in their hearts the Spirit's testimony that they're children of God. Here's what John Stott says about the connection between those two verses, Romans 5.5 5 and, and 8.16. Each verse gives us an example of the Holy Spirit's ministry of inward assurance as he convinces us of the reality of God's love on the one hand and of God's fatherhood on the other. Indeed, it would be hard to separate these two verses since God's love has been conspicuously lavished upon us in making us his children. And it seems from Christian biographies, this is still quoting Stott, he says, that it's, and it seems from 
Christian biographies that God gives these experiences to his people chiefly when they pray. Fourth, imperishable inheritance. You can know that God is your new adoptive father. You can be certain you've received the spirit of adoption because the spirit dwelling in you is the first fruits of your imperishable inheritance, which is the, the inheritance that became yours the moment God's spirit confirmed your adoption and made you an heir. And if children, Paul says in verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. To be an heir is to be the recipient of an inheritance. So what inheritance is Paul talking about here? What will you inherit as a child of God? What's waiting for you? What are you looking forward to? Well, there's a couple options here in the interpretation of what Paul's talking about. He could be talking about the same inheritance that Peter refers to in 1 Peter 1, 4, where he says that God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That could be the primary thing Paul's talking about. And I'll say this, at the very least, we can't exclude this from whatever it is that Paul might be primarily referring to in verse 17. After all, Paul mentions this aspect of our inheritance later in the chapter, down in verse 23, which says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit inwardly groan for our new bodies and the world to come, which is the inheritance that Peter's talking about. However, I agree with those scholars who argue that the inheritance Paul mainly has in mind, and really this includes everything, but, but at, in the foreground of his mind is not something that God intends to bestow on us. He's not talking about our new bodies or the new creation or the beauty and the bliss of our heavenly reward, our mansions or whatever it is we might be looking forward to. He's talking about God himself. God is our eternal, imperishable inheritance. That's the most natural meaning of the phrase, heirs of God, inheritors of God. We might translate it awkwardly, but accurately. Paul's not saying here that we're God's heirs in the way a son is a father's heir. That's, that, that truth is in this passage. Or the way Isaac was, was the heir of Abraham. That's one way to read the Greek, and that idea is, is here, but it's not the most likely reading. What Paul is saying in this phrase is that we're heirs, and our inheritance is God himself. 
God himself is the inheritance of his children. Now, it may sound strange, maybe even forced to us, but this concept was, is very familiar in the Old Testament. This is not new. Paul's not introdu- introducing something weird or different and expecting us to get it. For example, the, the Levites were not given a land, you know, they, they weren't given an inheritance in the land, a land inheritance, because they inherited what or who? God. Deuteronomy 18.2, the tribe of Levi shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. They were heirs of God, inheritors of God. But this wasn't only true of the Levites. It was true in a particular way for the Levites. It was also true, though, for individual Israelites who could pray, for example, from Psalm 73, which is a psalm of Asaph, a psalm of an individual for the people of God. Starting in verse 25, he says, Whom have I, I, personal, in heaven but you? This this should be your prayer. Who, Who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. That word portion is inheritance language going all the way back to the books of Moses when there was an, when there was the giving of the inheritance, the giving of the land, the portion portioning out of the land. And what the psalmist is saying is God is my inheritance, my portion. He's his eternal inheritance, he even says. And he wants nothing, he says except God. He doesn't have anyone or anything but God in heaven, and there's no person or thing on earth that he desires besides God. It's a strong statement. What about you? Are you satisfied with God? Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Or do you need God plus? God plus other things, God plus other people, God plus other circumstances to be happy? Do you need to inherit something or someone besides God to have joy and contentment and peace? When God is enough, people endure, can endure great trials and disappointments without losing hope because they know that the eternal glory of an imperishable inheritance awaits them. They can endure a miserable job, a miserable health, miserable friends, miserable finances, miserable neighbors, a miserable marriage, miserable relationships. They can face trials of various kinds because they know that what awaits them on the other side is God. Eternal communion with God without any separation or distance or obstacles of any kind, of the kind that we experience now. They are willing to suffer with Christ, which is also a hallmark of the Son of God, of the Christian, as Paul says in the ending of this passage. They are willing to suffer with Christ now so that one day they can experience with Him the glory of perfect fellowship with God. Is that what you're looking forward to? 
Is that what gets you through the groanings of life in this world? I'm afraid that, that many professing Christians hear this wonderful news that God himself is their eternal, imperishable inheritance. And their first thought is something like, but I also get my own personal mansion too, right? Do you look forward to having something other than God? Just a placeholder. Something other than God in the world to come more than you look forward to having God himself. Does eternal fellowship with God seem like an anticlimactic reward here? An anticlimactic application? We like First Peter 1-4 4 better. Do you need more than God to be happy? Not if you are a son of God who's been freed from fear and from slavery to sin. Not if the Spirit of God is directing you toward greater and greater holiness. Not if you are in the habit of communing with God in prayer, calling on Him as your Father. Not if the indwelling Holy Spirit is teaching you to cry out to God and address Him as, Dear Father, Abba, Father. Since God is your inheritance, you're a co-heir with Christ because God the Father is also His inheritance. The Father was enough for Jesus when He was on earth, and He's enough for Jesus now in heaven. When Jesus prayed Psalm 73, 25, and 26, and we know he did, when he prayed that to the Father, he meant it all the way down. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever, my inheritance forever. A lot of translations say God is the strength of my heart instead of the rock of my heart, but the word is rock, and that image is powerful. Is God the rock of your heart? In other words, is he your inheritance? Do you see him as your inheritance? It's common for people to say that so-and-so is my rock, and usually they mean another human being, but there's only one rock that can't break, and that rock is your eternal, imperishable inheritance. He's the rock of your heart now, and he's your portion or your inheritance forever. Is he enough, or do you need something else? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for giving us the greatest inheritance of all, yourself. Oh, help us to long for you, to desire you more than anything, even to have no other desire besides you, as the psalmist says. We confess that you are our rock, the rock of our hearts, and yet we also confess that we often seek other rocks, long for other inheritances. Help us 
to trust in you and to look to Jesus and to live as faithful sons of God. Pray this for the sake of Christ. Amen.